Before we get started today, we're going to continue our ser uh, sermon series, Jesus in Genesis. I want to take some time and pray um, for our message and for our time together, but also pray for a word that just came to mind as I was preparing, I was, I was, as I was preparing today, and that word is perseverance. I think we sometimes can think that this, is, this should all just be easy and we coast along and, and get to where we need to go because Jesus loves us, but there is a call for all believers, all of us, to persevere to the end. Um, those of you that have been a Christian for a while have probably seen friends and family walk away from the faith, and that is a difficult thing to see, and it is a spiritual reality that is true, that there are those of us who will look like we are mature, look like we are good, be seemingly growing and maturing, and we fail to persevere. So. Um, I, I feel that burden as, as someone who walks with this community and, and want that for myself as well. So let's take some time. Let's pray, particularly for perseverance. Lord, thank you that you have set the model for obedience, for perseverance, for striving with us and for us, and that you have given us your Holy Spirit and still call us to persevere, to walk in obedience, to not give up on the simple disciplines of meeting with you, of meeting with each other, of not losing sight of the high calling that we have in Christ, of not failing to meet together and show love to each other, God. So I pray that we would persevere. Lord, that we would persevere in you, that we would persevere alongside of each other, that we would persevere in love and not by the power of our flesh, that by the inspiration and love of Jesus that compels us. Give us power, Lord to persevere. Help us to not grow faint or lose zeal. Help us to call out to you for help when we need it, to ask for your spirit to fill us again so that we can persevere. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. We are continuing our sermon in Genesis, our, our series in Genesis. Today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 32. So if you have a Bible, or a Bible reading device, go ahead and flip there. That's Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 32. So I'm going to read our verses, and then we'll get into the message. Starting at verse 22, I'm reading from the ESV. That same night, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. But Jacob asked, but Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him, and he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, 
Till this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is attached on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Amen. Amen. This is our second week looking at the life of Jacob. And Jacob is a character that for all of his ups and downs and strange encounters and interactions that happen in scripture, um, he's a character that I can resonate with. When I was preparing for this message, I decided to just read Jacob's life from beginning to end throughout the book of Genesis. And many of the things that happened to Jacob and the ways that he responded to them didn't make sense until I remembered a connection that Jacob and I have. And that connection is this. Jacob and I are both the youngest sibling, which is the best sibling. <laughs> and so when I read about some of the things that happened to Jacob, some of the ways that he responds as the youngest sibling, as the baby, I get it. We talked about them, uh, some of them last week, right? Jacob is kind of a sneaky character. He steals his brother's birthright. He steals his father's blessing. He's got no chest hair. His older brother is the hairy one. He likes to be inside. He likes to cook. He's his mother's favorite. He's kind of a typical youngest sibling. And he's been, up to this point, pretty slippery. Now, the typical narrative around the youngest sibling is that he gets away with everything because he's the favorite or because he's the baby. I remember uh, that's what my brother used to say about me all the time when I was a kid. My brother's two years older than me, so we were right at that age where we have the typical sibling rivalry. Now, in our house, the most prized possession was the remote control. Because in these days, there was no DVR, there's no you know, recording your show and watching it later. Your program was on, and if you missed it, you just missed it. So we would fight over the remote control almost all day. He'd be watching something and I'd come up and snatch it, or I'd be watching something and then he'd come up and snatch it out of my hand. And this would just go on and on, it would lead to fights, and then we would get in trouble with my parents. Now, if you hear my brother's side of these struggles, he will say that my parents were harder on him than they were on me because I was the baby and I got away with everything. So if we had a fight over the remote control and I got hurt, he would get punished. But if we got in a fight over the remote control and he got hurt, they would just say, hey, you guys, calm down, you guys are being too rough, and just move on. I will neither confirm nor deny that account of how things happened. But either way, the perception was that because I was the youngest sibling, I got away with everything. Rachel's nodding and laughing because my brother talks about this every time when we're together. So up until this point, if you read in Jacob's life, it feels like he's getting that youngest sibling treatment, like he's just getting away with everything until you get to this point in the narrative. So some background of the previous chapters between what we read uh, last week and where we are today. Jacob spent roughly 20 years in a place called Padan Aram with his uncle. And the Lord tells Jacob after a time in that place that basically you've fallen out of favor. He's there with his uncle Laban. And the Lord tells Jacob, it's time to pick up and it's time for you to go back home. The only issue is, is that Jacob assumes that his brother Esau, whom we talked about last week, is still upset with him because of their history together. And that's mainly because of two things, and we talked about them in depth last week. I'll give you a brief summary of them. There we go. Genesis 25. The first is Esau, the older brother, comes in tired from a day of work. Remember, Esau is the outdoorsman. He's got the hair on his chest. He's the 
He's the, the kind of rough and tumble one. So he comes in from a day of working and Jacob takes advantage of him. He says, hey, sell me your birthright. And Esau agrees in compulsion. Now a birthright in this culture is like a rite of passage. You get more of the inheritance, you're seen as the leader of the family, and typically, traditionally, this goes to the oldest sibling. But Jacob swindles his way into it. Then again, Genesis 27, Jacob uh, and Esau, their father Isaac, is old and can't see well. And Jacob essentially dresses up like his older brother Esau. He puts on a, a furry outfit, because remember, he has no chest hair. And so he kind of, I imagine that in the story, he probably like changes his voice to try to sound like Esau, like, hey, it's me. And Isaac is old and can't see, and he believes him. And Jacob steals the father's blessing. Now, the key in this is that 11 and 12, there's a risk of him being cursed. You see that there in verse 12, a curse upon myself and not a blessing. So Jacob, risks being cursed in order to get the blessing that he needs from his father. Now this time, after Esau finds out about being tricked again, he's so upset that he tries to kill Jacob. He wants to kill Jacob in his anger. And at the advice of his mother, Jacob decides to flee. Now we won't spend much time on this, but this is, like I said, the kind of chapters in between where we were at last week and this week. Jacob spends 20 years in a place called Padan Aram, and he spends that with his uncle Laban. Now, during this time, Jacob gets married twice. Uh, the first time, it's kind of a funny story. He gets tricked into marrying the daughter of his uncle Laban that he doesn't want to marry, and so he has to work for another seven years to marry the daughter that he wants to marry, and he ends up getting married twice. He has uh, 12 children between his two wives and their respective maidservants who were also just part of the deal, and he's got a big family, he's grown, he's been working, and he's developed uh, uh, basically a family over this time, over this 20 years. But now, we've, as we've observed, Jacob falls out of favor with his uncle Laban, and now he's got to flee back home. And the concern is that after all this time, 20 years, Esau is still mad at me. Now, as a younger brother, I can relate to this because there was a time where when my brother would feel like I got away with everything, I stole the remote from him one too many times, my parents would leave the house and it was just me and him and we had to face each other. Which normally just meant more fighting and wrestling and we're two years apart so we're about the same size and it's just chaos. So I can relate to Jacob's prayer as he's on his way back to meet Esau. This is in Genesis 32. Save me, I pray. For the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid that he will come and attack me, and also my mother's with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. So like I said, what, can I, what I can appreciate about Jacob is he's got this maybe younger siblingness to him. But when that luck runs out, he turns to the Lord, and he remembers the promise that God the Lord made to Jacob and to Jacob's descendants, meaning that Jacob's descendants would be numerous like the sand of the seashore. But in all that promise that he remembers in that prayer, he still has to face his brother, his own flesh and blood. And like I said, I can relate to that because there would be those times where my parents would leave and it was me and him. And normally that meant a fight. 
And Jacob does get in a fight, but it's not with his brother. The text says that he fights with a man or this divine being whom he wrestles with until daybreak, and in this strange encounter, he's given a blessing. Now that blessing to me is the most impactful part of this entire interaction. Um, remember, up until this point, Jacob has kind of been getting away with everything. He's getting the youngest sibling treatment. And so the context, right? He's his mother's favorite. He's got his father's blessing. He's got the birthright in the family. He's got the covenant promise from God that the older would serve the younger. And we talked about this even last week in Romans 9. There's even maybe some divine favoritism here. Jacob what? Jacob I loved Esau. I hated. But if you take all those things into account, you still have to take into account the identity that God gives to Jacob. And I think for us, if we're Christians, if we believe that we have this divine love or this divine favoritism where God loves Christians more than he loves Jews and Muslims and Buddhists and all the other religions, because that's some of the narrative here is that there are two nations that are being created with Jacob and Esau, I think there's something that we can learn from Jacob. And to understand that, I want to start by looking at the way that Jacob prepares for this interaction with his brother. And then we'll look at the encounter he has with the man, ultimately God. And then I'll talk about what I think we can learn from Jacob. So first, Jacob prepares for the interaction with his brother real briefly. Earlier in chapter 32, um, before our reading, Jacob gets word that Esau, his brother, is coming to meet him. And he's got 400 men with him. So this is probably, in Jacob's mind, not a greeting parade. So he's afraid. And the messengers tell Jacob this much. Verse 6, when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, the flocks and herds, and the camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. So he divides everyone up in anticipation of meeting Esau. Remember we saw earlier, he'd already prayed, and now you get to verse 22 where the night, arose, the night arises, he sends everyone ahead of him, those two groups, and he's alone. Now I think the reason he's doing this is he's sending those who are most dear to him ahead. He's got 12 kids, he's got two wives, two maidservants, a bunch of livestock, and he's saying, hey, all the things that I've accumulated in my life, all the children, the wives, all of that, I'm sending that ahead because there's probably gonna be a really violent encounter between me and my brother. And remember the promise that God made to Jacob that his descendants would be numerous like the sand of the seashore. So if you think about it, I think what Jacob is doing here is saying, hey, if this fight ends in me getting killed, let God's promise continue with my children, with my offspring. Let that go on. I don't want to mess up God's promise. So if I've done enough up to this point in my life where my brother's going to kill me, let the promise continue on with my offspring. So it seems that Jacob is preparing for the fight of his life. And like we said, he does get into a fight, but it's not with his brother. So just a little brief history on how he prepared. Now let's look at the interaction that Jacob has with the man. The passage says that he wrestles with a man until daybreak. Now there's an interesting dichotomy here. This is a man who wrestles with him all night, cannot prevail against him, but with one touch can dislocate his hip. The man has to be let go. And Jacob says, knowing that he is probably some sort of divine being, says, no, I'm not letting you go. 
until you bless me. Now you see the character of Jacob kind of coming out here, because remember, steals his father's blessing, steals his birthright. He's, he's being living up to his name. He's being a deceiver. And I think he's swindling another blessing here because especially when you see him asking the man's name, he's probably trying to think like, well, if I want to call on this, conjure this person up again, I want to continue to get and receive these blessings. And then the man switches it and says, well, what's your name? And he gives them, uh, Jacob a blessing by changing his name from Jacob to Israel. Now, names in this culture were important. They speak to your identity, they speak to your purpose, and there's some poetic symbolism behind them. So Jacob's name here is being changed from what used to mark him to what's going to mark him going forward. Now, like I said, the name Jacob means deceiver or also heel grabber, right? You see that from the beginning. He's grasping at Esau's heel, as we talked about last week, in the womb. And up until this point, he's been living up to that name. He's born, coming out of the womb, grabbing his brother's heel. He's deceiving people. He's conniving. He's, he's swindling and scheming and scandaling, stealing his brother's birthright, stealing his father's blessing. Now he's running off from their homeland, coming back home, hiding and sending the people ahead of him to make sure that he doesn't get killed, hiding from his brother. He's living up to that deceiver name. But now the deceiver will be known as Israel. Or as the verse says, one who has striven, you could, you could translate that word and other translations do, striven could be also be said struggles. One who struggles with God and with man, but has overcome. Now after receiving this blessing, Jacob tries to get the man's name, but he leaves before daybreak. And again, this could be Jacob just trying to get something more out of this guy. And now Jacob, as the man is left, is convinced that he's had an encounter with the divine. This plays out in the naming of the place, Peniel, meaning face of God. I have seen the face of God and lived to tell about it. As you see the history of the Old Testament uh, move on, and uh, later on, the prophets even look back on Jacob with a similar remembering of how things happened. This is the prophet Hosea, way, way later on, hundreds of years in redemptive history. The prophet Hosea says this about Jacob. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. So let's, I'm gonna talk about the, the man for a second that Jacob wrestles with. Um, Hosea describes him as an angel. When he leaves, Jacob says, I've seen the face of God. So there's this debate around how exactly do you identify the person that Jacob sees here? There's a spectrum of, is this an angel from God? Or is this God directly coming as a messenger? That's all the word angel means in the Bible. Is this God himself appearing as a messenger? What some scholars call a theophany. You read about these all over the Old Testament where God personifies himself as a person, place, or a thing. The book of Job, for example, God speaks to Job directly out of a storm. This is what some scholars call, like I said, a theophany, where God appears directly to a, a living being, to a person, and interacts with them like a person would to another person. The storm speaks directly to Job. There's another really interesting one in uh, the book of Judges, Judges 13. There's a man named Manoah. Manoah is actually a descendant of Jacob by his son, Dan. And Manoah has this interaction. There we go. I've underlined it. That's not from the text. I've just underlined it for emphasis. But Manoah has this interaction with an angel 
with the divine being where it's kind of the same thing where he sees the divine being and he does like Jacob does. He says, hey, let me let you stay here and prepare a meal for you. Let's keep you around a little bit longer. And then after the interaction, the divine, he asks the divine being his name and the being says, just like the one of Jacob, I'm not telling you my name. Why do you ask my name seeing that it is wonderful? And then after the encounter, Manoah has the same response as Jacob. We have surely seen God. Whatever we saw was so magnificent, so great, so glorious that we have seen God and we have lived to tell about it. So the similarities, right? Ask the angel's name. Angel doesn't give its name. Want the angel to stay around. Angel leaves. I think we've seen God. There's plenty to debate about. Is this, like I said, God uh, sending an angel or God in angel form? But what I don't think we should leave past or move past here is the response that both Jacob and Manoah give. The idea that I saw something so holy, I can only personify it as God. And because I've seen that thing, that holiness makes me feel like I am no longer permitted to breathe another breath. I'm going to die. I've seen God face to face, as Jacob says. If you stand face to face with someone, uh, it's pretty awkward, which is why they do staring contests, right? If you just like look at somebody, it can be like one of us is going to break because this is uncomfortable. So Jacob has made a, a pretty bold claim here that the God who spoke the world into existence just flooded the world in judgment a few generations ago, the God who is powerful enough to with one touch just dislocate my hip, I looked face to face with that God all night and now I've lived to tell about it. So in the Old Testament, whether it's a storm, pillar of cloud by day, fire by night, angelic being, you get these hints of people seeing God face to face. But it's only hints. Because what it's preparing us for is a man who does enter time and space and makes a way for us to stand face to face with God in his presence. And not just for Jacob and for Manoah, but for all of us. And this is where I think we can learn from Jacob. Remember God's promise to Jacob, your descendants are going to be numerous. This is very similar to the, God, the promise that God made to Abraham, to Noah, and what you see throughout redemptive history in the Old Testament is God is keeping his promise. God is faithful to his people through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, later on Joseph. The people and the flaws and the ways they mess up change, but God remains faithful. David actually makes the recital of this at the, uh, uh, talking about the patriarchs as he's worshiping before the ark of God. This is in Chronicles. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel, an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. So God makes this promise and remains faithful generation after generation. And the shift that happens, particularly with Jacob, is God's people get more clearly defined as an actual nation with the name Israel. They become a nation of people with their own religious identity, their own land, all believing in this same promise that God is going to keep a specific people. And you see this as the, the Old Testament and Genesis uh, progresses on. Jacob has 12 sons. 
one of which is Joseph. And at the end of Jacob's life, they all settle down in Egypt and they live there and continue to grow and multiply for hundreds and hundreds of years. They eventually have to get delivered by Moses through the Exodus period. They're then led into the promised land by Joshua and their religious identity, their numbers continue to grow because once they get into the promised land, they have their land, they get their law from Moses, they begin to form as the actual people that God called them to be. And you have 1,200 years, judges, kings, prophets, splits between God's covenant people, sent into exile, brought back into their covenant land, all because of sin. And the entire time, I think you could sum it up from God's perspective, the way Joshua does. I love the, this promise or this, this uh, verse in Joshua, that not one of the good promises that the Lord made to the house of Israel, that's Jacob's new name, not one of the good promises that the Lord made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. God's promise to Noah and to Abraham and to Isaac, to Jacob, all came to pass. God was faithful the entire time. And this special relationship that God had with Israel was meant to show the entire world, not how good Israel was or how good Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Noah was. It was meant to show the world how faithful God is. And you see this in Exodus. When the law is laid down, there's a description of what it means for them to be this covenant people. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. Those are Jacob's descendants. And if you read the Old Testament or you read on in Exodus, you know the people of Israel fail over and over again. They do not obey his voice. They do not keep his covenant. Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, prophets, the Old Testament is 2,000 plus years of God being faithful to people who are unfaithful to him. But what Jesus makes clear when he comes on the scene is that there's a way to be identified in this covenant people, in this people of God. And it's not by being in Jacob's family lineage. It's not by keeping the Mosaic law. It's by having faith in what I think we see foreshadowed here in Jacob's interaction with the man. Faith in the idea that there would be a man who would allow us to stand face to face with God. And that Jesus is the one who allows us to be included in God's people, regardless of our family lineage. There's a clear example of this in the book of Matthew. Uh, there's a Roman soldier, so this is someone who is not one of Jacob's descendants, who expresses faith in Jesus to heal his child. And Jesus says this, about the Roman soldier. Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the many from the east and the west is referring to people who are not a part of that family lineage. People outside of Jacob's line can be included in God's people by expressing their faith in Jesus. That's good news, because that means you and I do not have to live the way that Jacob lived before he became Israel. A couple examples. First, we can live differently 
because we have an inheritance. Jacob wanted the inheritance of Isaac, and so he stole it. He stole the birthright, and he tried to get what he wanted by stealing. In Christ, as God's people, we are included in his people, and we are co-heirs to his uh, heavenly blessings. So that's good news for us as people, because we don't have to steal an inheritance like Jacob stole the inheritance from his brother Esau. What it also means is that we don't have to risk being cursed to receive our father's blessing. Jacob risked being cursed by dressing up as his brother, by deceiving his father, and risking being cursed to receive the blessing that he wanted from his father. But in Christ, we receive imputed righteousness and are free from the curse of sin, accepted, blessed by our heavenly father. That's also good news. Paul writes about this idea in Romans 8, the idea that we as believers in Jesus are filled with the Holy Spirit, meaning God is with us just like he is with Jacob. And because of that, that confirms our identity to being included in God's people. Romans 8, 16 and 17. Whoops, did I skip ahead one? There we go. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Lastly, this means that we can stand face to face with God forever and worship him because a man made a way for us to be included in God's people, because Jesus made a way for us to be included in God's people, which is why we read that verse in Revelation 7 before we got into worship today, because that's the end goal, that's the end picture that God's people will have, all of us descended one from all the tribes of Jacob, all the tribes of Israel, but also a great multitude that no one can count, worshiping God in his presence forever. That's all good news. That as God's people, we get an inheritance, we get our Father's blessing free from the curse of sin, we're also included in his people, worshiping him face to face in his presence, that presence that Jacob said, that's amazing, I was face to face with God and lived to tell about it. We get to be in that presence forever. That's good news. But you know what this also means for us? Being included in God's people also means for us, struggle. Israel means one who has striven or struggles with God and with man. And look at how Jacob leaves the interaction that he had with God. He's limping away. He's dislocated his hip and probably popped it back in the joint and he's just kind of limping his way along, probably for the rest of his life. There's no modern medicine. I don't think he went to you know, UPMC and got his hip popped back in and got rehab. He was probably just like this for the rest of his life, struggling. Jacob has no problem asking for a blessing, but in a pre-Revelation 7 world, God teaches and identifies his people through blessing, but also through struggle. Just as Hebrews said, Jesus was made perfect through suffering. And Jesus tells his followers that if you're going to follow me, life will be the same. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In other words, Jesus says you could swap out that word tribulation for in this world you will struggle. This is right before Jesus is about to be crucified and his followers are scattered and left alone, just like Jacob was left alone. And he tells them straight up with no qualifications, in this world, 
you will have tribulation, you will have struggle. Not, you know, yeah, you'll have tribulation, but if you follow my teachings, life will be much easier. Or you'll have tribulation, but if you pray and have faith, it'll go away. Or, you know, there'll be tribulation, but if you vote for the right political leader, life will be made much easier. No qualifications. In this world, you will have tribulation. So what I want to leave you with tonight, what I think we can learn from Jacob, is that if you are a Christian and life is hard, take heart. You can follow Jesus with a limp. Just like Jacob limped along after meeting God face to face. In this life, before we enter God's presence fully, like we read about in Revelation 7, we can embrace struggle. Now let me qualify this a bit, because sometimes struggle is of our own doing. You actually can read about this and, and see this in Jacob's life. Um, he's afraid when he's going back to meet his brother because he's been scamming and deceiving him for most of his life. And so he has to run and hide and live in fear because of the way he's been dishonest with people. Proverbs talks a lot about that, right? The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. So wisdom for someone like Jacob, part of the Bible's wisdom for someone like Jacob is to say, hey, your life will be a lot less stressful if you are honest with people. And I think most of us resonate with that kind of wisdom. Because if we live by wise principles, like you read about in Proverbs, there are certain life struggles and life troubles that we can avoid. But Proverbs is only one of the examples of the wisdom literature that's in the Bible. You have two other books. We actually did a whole sermon series on one of them, Ecclesiastes and Job. And you know what's in both of those books? A lot of struggle. And struggle that's not necessarily a result of people's direct choices or sinful living. Ecclesiastes, the teacher realizes that after life, after he's lived his life that's been very full of, of many ups and downs, that it's all empty. He remarks this, remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. So the teacher realizes that even after having a, a very full life with all types of achievements, that it's vain, it's empty. Struggle. Job, also a narrative of a righteous man who, who struggles through no uh, fault of his own, makes this very profound remark. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In other words, struggle. So if you're a Christian and life is hard, yes, Read Proverbs, live by its wisdom, implement its principles in your life. You will avoid some struggle, for sure. But also realize that Jesus said, as his followers in this world with no qualifications, we will have tribulation. That is our identity. Remember, even the identity that was given to Jacob, now Israel, is one who struggles with God and with man and has overcome. We cannot leave out the struggle. We love the promises that I just read about in Romans 8, 16 and 17 that talk about our identity as people of God and heirs to the covenant blessings because we're part of God's people. But some of you should have raised your eyebrows when I put up Romans 8, 16 and 17 because there's a comma in verse 17 and then there's more of the verse. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, then heirs heirs of God and heirs with Christ, comma, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also 
be glorified with him. We cannot leave out the struggle. Some of you um, know this is not a secret. It's been well talked about amongst our church family that uh, my wife Rachel was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer in December of 2021. And uh, while I was preparing for this message, I was just reflecting on that time and, and, and the things that we went through, which were multiple surgeries, multiple rounds of chemo, lots of trips back and forth to the hospital, and the entire thing felt like a struggle, to say the least. And here we are in 2023, a little more than a year later, and I share my testimony with you that I have no grand aha moments, I have no major plot twists, I have no immediate or miraculous healing, although we do pray for that and are grateful for the progress that has been made. But I think all that's okay. Because if this is true, if being part of God's people means that we struggle, and if Jesus makes a way for us to be included in God's people, and if we can continue to follow Jesus, even if we limp along, we can take confidence in the same promises that Jacob did, that God is with us, and he will be with us wherever we go. And that is what I remember most honestly consistently about the time that we went through starting in December with the cancer diagnosis was that God was with us. God was with us in the chemo rooms. God was with us on the surgery tables, the nights where I had to go home and Rachel spent the night in the hospital, the follow-up appointments and all of the inconvenience and things that we dealt with in between. God was with us and the whole thing was a struggle. And afterwards, like I said, my test did not become a testimony at least one that's very spectacular. My setback was not a setup for a comeback. All I really feel is a limp. Like, you know, I really don't wanna do that again. God, can you, please, <laughs> that's enough. But Jesus says, in this world, we will have trouble, but we can take heart because Jesus has overcome. Which means that in the trials and tribulations that we all face in life, we don't have to have grand victories or testimonies or amazing stories that sound really great and that sound like movie scripts for every challenge that we face. There are times where God teaches us the wisdom that's in Ecclesiastes. God teaches us through the wisdom that is in Job, where we just go through suffering and there's no grand explanation other than life is hard in a fallen world and we long for the day where we, are see, where we will see our creator face to face. But until that day, we can limp along. We can limp along as we follow Jesus. There were times during the chemo process where I didn't pray or read or respond in ways that were as godly as I wanted to. Not that I expected perfection, but I was like, man, I feel like I'm falling off a little bit. And that was discouraging for me personally. The temptation though during those times would be, would be for me to just look back on that season and continually count the ways that I failed even my own standards. But a helpful perspective I've heard um, is that every time people fail, it's an opportunity for God to display his faithfulness and win us back to him. Because on the back end of every one of my failures, God led me back to himself. Through it all, I was far from perfect, even by my own standards, but every time I'd brush myself off and think, well, I still wanna believe the gospel. I still wanna try to figure things out. And quite frankly, just like the disciple said, I don't know where else I'm gonna go. So let me continue to limp along. And this is really what we've been reading throughout the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Noah. Every time someone fails, God shows himself faithful. Abraham messes up, Isaac messes up, Jacob messes up, 
and they all limp along because God remains faithful. And that faithfulness of God, that kindness of God to continually be there and be his perfectness when we mess up, that is what holds everything together. And it's actually what makes the reunion of Jacob and Esau a really sweet story of forgiveness. Remember, Jacob has the birthright. He's got the father's blessing. God has decreed that the older would serve the younger. This all gives, could give Jacob uh, carte blanche to just be a jerk to his older brother because God would still remain faithful to the promise. Even still, it seems that Jacob's heart is softening a little bit. He sends gifts ahead to his brother Esau in order to try to soften his brother's heart in hopes that that reunion will be a sweet one. And he insists that his brother receive this offering, this apology. I love this. This is Genesis 33. Jacob says to Esau, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my, pre accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. The grace of God caused a younger sibling to not, to not take revenge on his older brother. As the youngest sibling, I can say that is a true miracle. And probably something that doesn't happen unless Jacob has that encounter where he meets God and like the passage says, experiences and knows that he has encountered God's grace and God's presence. And that is what we will spend eternity enjoying. Which is why I think when Jacob leaves this interaction that he's had, where he's dislocated his hip, he still finds it in himself to call the place Peniel, meaning face of God. Because even in the midst of his suffering, even in the midst of going through something that's extremely painful, I don't know if anyone's ever broken a bone or dislocated a joint, not pleasant. Jacob does, goes through this and suffers all night. And he leaves and he thinks, the most notable thing about this is I saw God face to face. There's a common idea that Jacob and Job and Jesus all have in the midst of their struggle. And I already talked about it with Jacob, where the presence of God in the midst of his struggle is enough to keep him going even as he limps along. Job says something similar in the midst of losing everything, having everything essentially taken from him by no means of his own or no um, consequence of his own doing. Job says this, for I know that my redeemer lives and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my face, in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Job remembers in the midst of his difficulty that he will see God one day. He will be in God's presence. And that's enough to keep him going after losing all he had. And then Jesus on the cross, facing a criminal's death, the brutality of crucifixion, Jesus makes the comment, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We sung that song, the father turns his face away. For all the pain that Jesus endured, nails in his hands, crown of thorns on his head, beat with instruments of torture, hung on a tree, Jesus cries out to God because he feels the absence of his presence. He felt that isolation. The father turned his face away on Jesus so that Jacob 
and Manoah and Job and me and you would not have to feel the Father turn his face away to us for all of eternity. He felt that isolation so that we wouldn't have to. So through all of our pain, through all of our struggle, Jesus felt the ultimate pain so that as we struggle and as we go through the hardships of life, we could be assured that God is with us. So we embrace the struggle. We follow Jesus. We can continue to follow Jesus, even if we limp along, because Jesus is overcome. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And even as the world is broken and full of suffering, he's given us his spirit to comfort us, to remind us of our identity as his people. And that's enough to keep us going until we see him face to face. So persevere, keep going, even if you have to limp. Continue to remember God's promises to us as his people. Continue to remember what Jesus did on the cross. Continue to remember that we are included, we are God's people, because a man made a way for us to stand in God's presence, and that man was Jesus. Thanks for taking a minute to watch this video. My name is Pastor Chris Moran. I'm one of the pastors at Eternal City Church in Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania. Eternal City is a church that values biblical authority. We teach the Bible verse by verse, week by week, and we are seeking to eventually preach the whole way through the Bible. We believe that Jesus is God as he claimed to be, and his person and work are the center of the entire Bible. We believe that the Great Commission is still relevant today for Christians, that Christians are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching disciples to obey all that Jesus commanded. Eternal City is a church that values diversity in that we are a church of all kinds of people, cultures, classes, colors, and capacity. We are a church that values community and we seek to see our members hold one another accountable and build each other up in discipleship. We are a church that has a plurality of leadership for pastors and deacons who are servants who serve under the pastors. If this sounds like an interesting church to you, we would love for you to visit our website to find out more about us, eternalcity.org, or come visit us on Sunday evenings at 5 p.m., 1300 Swissville Avenue, Wilkinsburg, PA, 15221. Hope to see you soon.